Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon as we ease on into WIP Sunday, Easter Sunday 2017, here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. Hopefully you haven't overdosed on chocolate and sugar yet, and you can settle back for good conversation here with me. And first up for conversation this morning on WIP Sunday, Julia Dahl. Julia has been a journalist specializing in crime and criminal justice. She's worked as a CBS News reporter, worked for the New York Post, and she's got articles featured in many important magazines. And she's into writing fiction as well. Her newest novel, Murder and a Whole Lot More, that novel, Conviction. Good morning, Julia Dahl. Good morning. Why go from reporting fact to fiction? Well, I always wanted to write fiction. That was always a dream. But one of the things that you can do in fiction that you can't do in journalism is, well, make stuff up, which is always fun to do. Um, but, you know, when you're, especially when you're a daily newspaper reporter, so much of what you see and do every day never makes the newspaper. It never makes the story because, you know, it's not immediately relevant or, um, you know, or it's sort of a small detail. Uh, and in fiction, um, I, I, I was working for the New York Post back about 10 years ago. I started the job, and I was doing all these crazy things, running all around the city, you know, going to crime scenes, you know, stalking celebrities and politicians, and and so much never made the paper. And I thought, I have to write about this. It's so interesting. And then it also sort of scratches an itch for me in that, you know, when you're a reporter, you especially a daily type reporter like I was doing, I wasn't doing like big investigative work. You don't get to know your subject nearly as well as I wanted to. I'm sort of a nosy, curious person. I really wanted to like dive into the lives of the people I was meeting. But you can't do that when, you know, you've got a story to do the next day. Um, So with fiction, I get to sort of pick a few people that I'm really interested in and spend a lot of time exploring them. Well, in conviction, is there a kernel of truth, a person you meant that you wanted to explore? A little bit. I, you know, um, I started reading uh, two or three years ago. I felt like every week or so I would read a story in the New York Times or somewhere else about a man, usually a black man, who'd been convicted of a crime in the late 80s, early 90s, being exonerated. And, you know, and I started to just see this trend and, you know, I thought just personally, I can't even imagine what it would be like to spend 20 years in prison for something you didn't do. And I just saw this happen over and over, and it would be because, you know, they'd been exonerated through DNA, and we found out that they either falsely confessed or, you know, had a confession coerced, or an eyewitness was either wrong or lied, or there was evidence withheld. Um, So all this stuff happening, and I... um, and so I decided I wanted to write about that. And the, the book takes place sort of in the aftermath of a real event, the Crown Heights riots, which happened in 1991, where the uh, African-American and Caribbean-American community in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, uh, sort of clashed with over uh, a tragic uh, car accident, a, the, the Hasidic Jewish community in that neighborhood. And sort of the, the story of those two very different communities living side by side but not really um, interacting in any kind of positive way, you know, clashing and, and creating this, you know, three or four days of, of fires and rioting um, it was something I really wanted to explore. So it's like, you know, there's, there's stuff about it that's true, but the characters in the book are people I made up. So in Conviction, you really take what's, I think, a growing trend in 
fictional literature, taking fact, fiction, blending them together into what I've heard is termed faction. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if I would exactly call it faction, but maybe that's true. I mean, because I do, you know, discuss real events in the book. We t- I, I talk a little bit about, or I have characters talk about the Central Park Five you know, which is five real young teenagers who were wrongfully convicted of a a rape in Central Park back in 1989. I talk a little bit about, if you can believe it, Donald Trump, because back then, um, when those five teenagers were convicted, Donald Trump, then just, you know, the crazy real estate guy in New York, took out a full-page ad, I think it was in the Daily News, calling for them to get the death penalty. And now, of course, we know we didn't do it. Al Sharpton makes an appearance. So, yeah, I guess you're right. I'm kind of, you know, I, I, want it, I want the book to feel like a story that could happen. And because some of it happens in the past, I'm able to sort of bring in real-life stuff. Okay. Briefly, without giving too much away and names and dates changed to protect the guilty, what's the story behind conviction? So the story is that um, a year after, the summer after the Crown Heights riots, a family, a mother, a father, and a foster daughter is murdered in their home. And uh, a young teenager is quickly sort of rounded up, convicted, you know, key thrown away, nobody thinks about it. And then 20 years later, the protagonist of the novel, who is the um, protagonist of a series of novels I write, her name is Rebecca Roberts, and she is a tabloid reporter in New York City. She gets a letter from the kid who was convicted, whose name is Deshaun Perkins, basically saying, I didn't do it. You have to help. Please help me. And she dives into trying to figure out whether or not he did it. And if he didn't do it, who did it? How much of Rebecca Roberts is you? And how much of you is Rebecca Roberts? There's definitely a little of me in Rebecca. She's much younger than I am. Um, She, uh, I started working as a reporter at the New York Post when I was about 30. I'd already had a, a career in magazine journalism. And, um, I was working with a lot, it was such a, you know, it was a, a really interesting job, but a really tough job in that, you know, you're kind of constantly having to make really difficult ethical decisions on the fly because um, you're really into people's lives kind of at the worst times of their lives. That were, you know, daily reporters are kind of like the cops in that way. Um, and because I was a little more mature, I had, I felt like I had a little bit of a leg up in terms of making those decisions. But a lot of the people I worked with were like 21, 22, right out of school. They'd never had a job. Um, at least a job in journalism, and I wanted to write about what it would be like to be that young age and have this difficult job where you really don't have supervision. You know, I mean, if you're a runner reporter for a New York tabloid, you just wake up in the morning, they call you, and you go where they tell you to go and get whatever information they tell you to get and call it in, and you never see, you know, you rarely see an editor. So, you know, it's not like somebody is sort of, you're able to bounce off questions about, you know, should I knock on this? murder victim's sister's door and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it, it's about me, or it's it, a little bit of me because it's, you know, a, a job I had. Um, and it's a little bit of me because the protagonist, Rebecca, has parents who are, uh, her mother's Jewish and her father's Christian, but which is how I grew up. But um, Rebecca's mother was a Hasidic Jew, and she's, Rebecca's basically the product of an affair. Her mother at 19 rebelled from her very orthodox Hasidic ways and uh, got pregnant with the child of a a Christian boy she met and then abandoned them. So Rebecca never knew her mother. Um, And I very much know my mother. (laughs) 
So, you know, there's sort of like a few things about us that are like, but I like to say that Rebecca's sort of like, in a way, the superhero version of me. Like, she's a lot braver, um, but she's also a lot angrier. Uh, I kind of get to use her to explore things. Um, not exactly about myself, but it, like put her in situations I would never get to be in and then sort of like see what she does. Well, I certainly can understand a lot angrier because as a reporter, let alone in fact, as in fiction, you see a lot of really awful stuff, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, the, for the, the two, I'll never forget the, the first two stories I did when I was at the New York Post was one I was sent to, I had to knock on the door of this man who had just been released uh, from prison for child pornography. And I had to, you know, ask him this stupid question, frankly. And I was so nervous. And, you know, and of course the whole thing blew up in my face. He and his family like chased me off their lawn. Um, And then the next day I was sent to a little, um, to Queens where a little boy had been sort of back to the future style surfing on the back of a truck on his bike and was killed. And, you know, I mean, I, I, roll up, and his body's still in the middle of the street. It was awful. God. When you're a reporter like that, how do you keep not from throwing up? (laughs) I I mean, I think some of it has to do with just, like, your constitution. Some people can do it, and some people can't. Um, I don't know. It's such a good question. You know, mostly I, you know, I I was in the, the, there were definitely times where, like that little boy, that was one of them, um, I felt really shaken and, um, you know, I would come home and it was like a tough day and a tough night. And I just felt like I didn't know how to process what was going on, but I'm also just a really curious person. And most of the time I was just really grateful that I got to meet all these different kinds of people and be in all these different kinds of places that I've never been before. And that I would never have entree to if I wasn't a reporter. Hmm. Does Rebecca ever want to throw up? Yes. In fact, in the, so the, the conviction is the third in the series, and in Rebecca's uh, first book, Invisible City, she, uh, there is a scene in which she does throw up. She's just viewed um, a dead body, and she you know, doesn't know how to handle it. And um, want to throw up? Yes. Actually throw up, she does want because I would imagine, whether it's Rebecca or Julia, it's hard not to get hardened. Or, or, should, yeah. or is it good to get hardened? No, I, don't, I definitely don't think it's good to get hardened. I think, that, um, I think that if you lose your sort of humanity, you lose your ability to do the job right. Because really what your job is is to sort of bring the stories of, of other people to, to the world, to their neighbors who wouldn't have heard about them. And if, and if you just don't care about them you know, you're not going to care about what you're doing. At least I don't think. I mean, that's, you know, that's my opinion. But then again, you know, I only spent three years doing the really gritty on-scene stuff, and then I sort of moved away um, to doing more sort of longer features and online stuff. Um, But I think you you have to, you know, you have to feel those feelings. And you also have to be a certain kind of person who's going to be maybe over, sort of, who's going to sort of lean on the feelings of, I'm doing a job here, I'm doing something positive and that I'm, you know, bringing this person's story out or, um, you know, again, that, that curiosity, you know, I mean, there's something about being a writer and a reporter where you just have this 
insatiable curiosity about other people's lives. And even if what you see is ugly, you're still, you still feel like you're doing something positive. Some people, though, would say tabloid journalism appeals to the worst in human nature. <laughs> I don't necessarily think they're wrong. Um, I don't work for a tabloid anymore. Um, you know, I definitely think, and I think that tabloid journalism, you know, has has expanded. I think, you know, cable news is using what we maybe 20 years ago called tabloid journalism. And, and you know, the the mantra when you work for a website of, you know, you, you need to write a clickable um, headline. You know, is it, is it clickable? That's the same sort of idea as tabloid journalism is sort of like make it as heightened as possible so that people will read it, people will buy it. And, and I think there's something very dangerous absolutely about that, um, sort of stoking people's fear and outrage, um, sometimes very unnecessarily, um, but it might sell papers or it might sell clicks. Um, yes, I definitely agree with that. And I think that, that a place like the New York Post and the New York Daily News, although the Daily News actually just won a Pulitzer Prize, I'm not sure your readers are aware of that. They partnered with an organization called ProPublica and exposed some um, pretty major police misconduct in New York City. So there is some, some changing um, and maybe just some positivity. But the thing that sort of works for me about a tabloid and that or at least about the New York Post, which is sort of, I think of as like the tabloid of all tabloids, um, is that that although I have, don't think I've ever agreed with, you know, anything on their opinion pages and very often disagree with what they, you know, how they cover things and the headlines and all that, they are covering the city, New York City, in a way that like the New York Times is not. They're the one of, you know, kind of like the local paper. They're going to cover that murder um, in a neighborhood that the New York Times is not going to cover, you know, and they're going to stay on it. Um, they're going to cover the city corruption. Corruption. They're going to cover transit. They're doing the sort of the the daily journalism that the other New York City paper, uh, the New York Times, doesn't do so much. And so they, they, there is a place for that. But I absolutely agree that um, that and and part of the reason I've written this series of books is to critique tabloid journalism. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Julia Dahl, TV reporter, tabloid journalism reporter, magazine reporter, and now novelist. Her third novel starring her heroine, Rebecca Roberts, Conviction. Now, Julia, I need you to stay with me. Got to run a few commercials, pay those bills. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My guest this morning, Julia Dahl, author of the new novel, Inviction, the third in the Rebe- in a series exploring life, love, mystery, murder, and a whole lot more in the Big Apple, New York City. Julia, a lot of people would say our criminal justice system is broken. Do you agree? It's, there are parts of it that are definitely broken. Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, I, I mean, you don't even know really, really where to start discussing that. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, my job for the last more than 10 years has been picking apart all the pieces that are broken, looking at little bits of it, you know, looking at the the way we prosecute, say, sexual assault, you know, the fact that, that, that you know, if you, if you are even, if you are accused of, of sexual assault, you know, it's very, very unlikely you'll ever 
ever see the inside of a jail. If, you, if you're a woman who's been assaulted and you go get a rape kit at a hospital, it probably won't even get tested. It might get thrown away. Um, you know, the wrongful convictions is we're just learning more and more and more about this. I mean, race, uh, you know, you're, you're more likely to be convicted. You're more likely to be put to death. You're more likely to be arrested. How is that not utterly broken? Yeah. Um, and this is partly why I wanted to, well, partly why I wanted to become a reporter that writes about these subjects and also why I wanted to dig into them in fiction. There's just so much work to be done and it's just so important to the, to the daily lives of so many people. Um, you know, I'm lucky. I, I lived a, you know, I'm a, like, white liberal privileged chick from California in that um, very few people I've known have ever been to prison. Um, but I now know lots of people for, you know, whose family members have been in and out of the, you know, uh, in and out of the criminal justice system since they were young teenagers for ridiculous stuff that, you know, I've done. Smoking pot, um, you know, petty theft, not paying a fine. And it just, you know, it just absolutely um, devastates people's lives and families and leads to all kinds of social upheaval, obviously, you know, in terms of people growing up without, without parents, drug, you know, drug addicts getting, being thrown in jail instead of giving treatment. Uh, yeah, I'd say broken. <laughs> now I'm just going on and on. <laughs> you think Rebecca would agree? Definitely, definitely. Um, and, and I think she sees it as her, I don't think she knew it when she, you know, started the job at the tabloid, but one of the, 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 the very first book in the, in the series, Invisible City, she um, is called to the scene uh, where a, a, a woman has been murdered, and it turns out that the woman is a Hasidic Jew. Uh, there are a big population of Hasidic Jews in, in Brooklyn, and the thing that sort of gets her into the story is that she, um, she realizes that the woman is not going to be autopsied, and, um, and it's because uh, the family has enough power uh, and the community has enough power to basically um, make make sure that their ambulance service takes the body and buries it immediately, which is true within 24 hours, which is Orthodox Jewish tradition. And she's just totally appalled by this and then totally appalled that the, the people in this community won't talk to the police and the police don't seem willing to really dig into this community. So her first foray into um, into murder mysteries and into reporting is being just completely shocked at corruption, but also sort of laziness in the system. Obviously, Julia Dahl and Rebecca, your fictional character, um, believe very strongly in the power of journalism and the importance of journalism. At the same time, it's also being said that journalism right now is under attack from the White House on down. Mm-hmm. Does that worry you? Oh my gosh, it really worries me. It worries me a lot, and um, and I think it's it, you know it's it's so it's more important now. You know, we have like a d- democracy doesn't work if we don't know the truth of what's happening. If we can't hold the people who we've uh, who we've elected to account, if we you know if if we're disputing facts. I mean, it's just, not democracy doesn't work, but the world doesn't work. I mean, we spin off into some kind of dystopian future. I mean, yeah, I, and I really believe that. And I think that it is thus up to, well, one of the things Rebecca encounters in this book is that 
that journalists in, in many ways have a lot of power. You know, we are tasked with trying to find the truth, and then we are tasked with and challenged with taking that truth and showing it to the public. And, you know, obviously we have a lot of power in that we can twist it if we want. Um, but, you know, the, the ethical thing to do and the, the, the challenge, you know, for a reporter is to, I think, to present the truth as plainly as possible. But then we have to sort of step back, and then it becomes the citizenry's job to take what we've given them. You know, we've done this investigation. We've shown you that um, that the water in Flint, Michigan, and Fresno, California is, is poisoning our children. What are you going to do now? And in a way, there's a little bit, I think, as a reporter, a little bit of anxiety about that because you can do all the work. But if people don't demand that their representatives do something different, you know, um, vote people out, get in the streets, that work is for naught. But that work is so important. And, yes, we're under attack, but, you know, we just get stronger, I think, I hope. You think the public cares, though? I mean, I think we do. I think people care. Certainly when it touches them, when they find out that their kid has, you know, um, lead poisoning and that, that can, that's going to, you know, very well lead to lower IQ, more chance of criminal, you know, behavior, um, in, in, you know, less of a job, uh, possibility of being in prison. They do care when, um, you know, they, uh, I, you know, some people care that, you know, say, uh, you know, Donald Trump's charity was sort of a sham. Um, but maybe not enough people care or not enough people care until it really hits them, hits them at, you know, where they live. And And I'd like to say thank you to Julia Dahl for an enlightening interview into the world of journalism here this morning on WIP Sunday. Thank you, Julia. Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. And it's WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, and from the world of journalism, we dive into the world of the Old West as we welcome Tom Clavin. Tom's a best-selling author, worked as a newspaper man, a website (coughs) editor, and a magazine writer, and he's got a new book that takes us back into the wild, wild West as we talk to him about Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the wickedest town in the American West. Good morning, Tom Clavin. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm fine, and you're welcome. How, um, what, makes, what made Dodge City the wickedest town in the West? Well, when the railroad arrived in 1872, that meant that all the Texas ranchers could bring their cattle by the tens of thousands up through Texas, up through the Panhandle, into Kansas, and they brought them to Dodge City where they could put them on the train cars and send them to Chicago and other places that had the slaughterhouses. And so the, that was, that was the end of the trail, so they paid off their cowboys. And so suddenly you had these cowboys from Texas who had, you know, pockets full of money. They'd been on these dusty, lonely trails for weeks at a time, and they wanted they wanted to uh, to party, basically. And so uh, Dodge City, at least initially, uh, the, the business owners there were very happy to cater to, to, to the uh, cowboys. They, you know, saloons couldn't be built fast enough, and bordellos, and all other kinds of entertainments. And... Anything goes. It was just the people, cowboys, can ride up and down the street shooting off their pistols, and, and inevitably people got shot. There were disputes. There was too many drunken brawls. 
and people, you know, in, in newspapers, uh, uh, other publications, and elsewhere, as far as New York and Chicago and Philadelphia too, started to refer to Dodge City as the wickedest uh, town in the American West. Sounds like it was a fun town, though. It was fun for a while because uh, it was it was a place where everybody, you know, the, the visiting the Cowboys could have a good time. Now. What eventually happened was that the people who lived there, who were you know becoming permanent residents of Dodge City, and even the business owners got to be concerned because there were too many people being shot. You know, literally there would be these, these disputes breaking out, and people would go for their guns. And they started to get worried that if uh, you know the ranchers were realizing if their own cowboys were you know in danger. Uh, we're getting killed. We're getting robbed. Uh, you know, being fleeced by all these con games and by women they called soiled doves. That uh, they might decide to go to another town. They might say, "Well, let's go to Wichita instead, or let's go to you know Hayes City, some other Kansas tech cow town, and we'll we'll use their railroad facilities." So that's when they started to realize, you know what? Maybe we have to get some law into this town. Maybe we have to tone things down a bit. And certainly, when they went for law, they went for White Earp and Bat Masterson. And as I understand yeah. it, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Ask a question. Well, as, as I understand, the real Wyatt Herb, the real Bad Masterson, Hugh O'Brien and Gene Barry were about as far away from their reality counterparts as possible. Yes, they were. Uh, you know, the way Wyatt, especially Wyatt Herb, has been portrayed in. And uh, you mentioned Hugh O'Brien in the, t- the classic TV series, but there was also the movies like Tombstone and Wyatt Earp and Gunfight at the OK Corral, like Burt Lancaster played Wyatt Earp in those those pictures. Um, you know, they, they, they showed a Wyatt Earp who was older and he was in Tombstone and he was pretty set in his ways as a lawman. The Wyatt Earp of Dodge City is only in his 20s. I mean, this, this is really his first, uh, you know, full job as, as a lawman, as a system marshal. And so we're seeing Wyatt Earp when he's still being formed as a person, when he's still trying to figure things out. He's not the uh, you know know-it-all. He's, he's not the 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 symbol of law and order on the American West. He he grew into that, but it it sort of began in Dodge City, and he and he had the help of Bat Masterson, who was himself quite a you know a, a charismatic uh, character, very young. When Bat Masterson was elected sheriff of Ford County, which is Dodge City's in Ford County. He was only 22 years old. So we're seeing these two figures who would become legendary, iconic figures of the American West, but we would see them when they were still still young and, 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 and not sure how to do things. They had to figure it out as they went along. But were they good guys, or did they have their rotting crazy period? Well, Wyatt Earp never would, you know, I wouldn't describe what Wyatt Earp had as a wild and crazy period. He was never a wild and crazy kind of guy. He didn't talk that much, and he was not a very demonstrative, outgoing guy. Bat was, Bat was, Bat Masterson was. What Wyatt had was, uh, you know, and as the book explains, uh, Wyatt had gotten married young, and he, his wife was pregnant, and he was living in Lamar, Missouri, and where, where, where his parents were and a couple of brothers and sisters. And he was all set to, to really probably spend the rest of his life in Lamar, Missouri, and raise a family and work a, work a job there. But... Tragically, his wife died, his baby died too, and Wyatt, this grief-stricken Wyatt Earp leaves Lamar, starts working his way west. He starts getting into a lot of trouble, getting arrested. Uh, he even spends time in prison for being a horse thief. So we see this period of time where Wyatt Earp is, is an outlaw, 
and you know we, most people don't know about that but he he if we had known Wyatt Earp today it could be because he was one of the more notorious outlaws of the American West not because he was one of the most famous lawmen of the American West so the book explains that evolution of Wyatt how he sort of had to had to redeem himself by becoming a lawman and he did how about Mr. Masterson Masterson was was a, a big reason why uh, I wanted to do the book and why I enjoyed doing the book because most of us have name recognition for Bat Masterson. We, but we don't know exactly who he was. Was he a lawman? Was he a gambler? Was he an outlaw? What what was Bat Masterson? And uh, so the book, you know, shows what is uh, is uh, where he came from, his early life, and you know, as a very young man, he was only a teenager. He became a buffalo hunter, and he was one of five brothers. So there were the Masterson brothers, and there were six Earp brothers. So when they eventually got together, there was a pretty formidable force of lawmen that that worked together to to bring law and order to the American West. But Bat was a was a guy who liked the practical joke. He was an outgoing guy. He had a strong constitution. Uh, he was when he set his mind to something. There's stories in the book about when he uh, went on went on searching for these kidnapped sisters, uh, the Indians had kidnapped, and he it spent months and months. But he tracked them down and he brought them back. Uh, there's other stories of him leading posse's and. You know, eventually, Bat Masterson uh, winds up in New York as a newspaper reporter. So, a big part of the fun for me in doing the book was to tell the full story of Bat Masterson, which most people really don't know. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Tom Clavin, author of the new book about Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp. That new book being Dodge City, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson and the Wickedest Town in the West. <laughs> American West. Now, Tom, I need you to stay with me for a few minutes. Got to run a commercial. Sure. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 736. And we're back into the home stretch on WIP Sunday with my guest, Tom Clavin, author of the new book, Dodge City, Whiter, Bat Masterson, and the Wickedest Town in the American West. My name's Peter Solomon. Tom, why this book, though? I mean, the West fascinates you, but aren't there enough books about Bat and Wyatt? Well, you know, I, I, with with Wyatt Earp again, it's what's been done about Wyatt Earp uh, uh, is is mostly dealing with his tombstone days. Uh, we're seeing the Wyatt Earp with his brothers uh, Morgan and Virgil and Doc Holliday, and when they're older and they're in Tombstone and the gunfight at the OK Corral, and there's been a lot of stuff about that, especially in the movies. But uh, again. His earlier days have not really been covered and looked at. You know, what? how did Wyatt Earp become Wyatt Earp? And that really intrigued me. And that, that happened in Dodge City. This was years before Tombstone and, and, and years before the gunfight at the OK Corral. And, and where he first encountered uh, a lot of these characters, colorful characters that we know in the American West, it's where he first met Doc Holliday and where they became friends. It's where in Dodge City you saw people coming through like Billy the Kid and the James, Jesse and Frank James and Bell, Bell Starr, the famous female outlaw. And he had Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody. And, and, and with Bat Masterson also, uh, there had been a biography of Bat Masterson done, I'm going to say, 35, 40 years ago. And it was a good book, but there's a lot of things in there that just aren't true because we have, you know, there's more documents, there's more information we have available now. So it was wanting to do something that was an update and, and, and show the young Bat Masterson, the young White Earp, but also when they when they patrolled the Dodge City streets side by side as best friends. And, and that, that, that story, I don't believe, has been told before. All right. Dodge City was full of females, correct? 
Well, Dodge City had uh, had females, and many of them were as the, the the way they referred to them back then was soiled doves. They were they were you know working in the bordellos and and uh, to be available for the cowboys when they got off the trail. All right. Did Bat and Wyatt ever partake of the soiled doves or the school barn, for that matter? Well, I think in Wyatt's case, he had an, Wyatt had four wives, and some of them overlapped. Uh, so he had a, kind of a complicated domestic situation, and I, I don't know if you can say that Wyatt was was uh, took advantage of, of made use of the soil doves. Probably, you know, he he also was he uh, he made some extra money as a bouncer, a bordello bouncer. Uh, so, so that was a way to make some extra income. That was it was interesting in that uh, there's a story in the book. Uh, the first man that Bat uh, killed was. Uh, uh, Bat was in a town in Texas where he had uh, fallen in love with a with a saloon a singer and dancer there named Molly Molly Brennan and and there was this army sergeant who was infatuated with her and one night uh, he saw the two of them dancing in a saloon and he came bursting in the army sergeant pulled out his gun and he shot Bat and and he saw that Bat was was not dead so he went to shoot him again and and this Molly jumped in front of Bat and and took the bullet and died and Bat you know got his gun out by this point he shot and killed the sergeant and that was you know bat was somebody who, who enjoyed ladies company but as far as falling in love it didn't happen for many years later post post dodge city days post tombstone days bat was uh, operating a vaudeville uh, theater in, in colorado and he, and uh, he was an actor as part of the troupe he he saw her fell in love with her the feeling was mutual they were married for the last like, next 33 years of bat's life if you could take either one or both out to dinner, what would you ask them? What would you ask Wyatt? What would you ask Pat? Uh, I guess the question that fascinated me and what I you know, tried to deal with in the book is what, what was it that made you guys want to be good guys? You know, because in those days, there was a thin line, and some might say no, no real line between being an outlaw and a lawman. You know, there were some some characters in, in the book that kept shifting from one side to the other, depending on circumstances and money and 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 uh, what 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 was it about what was it about Wyatt and Bat, some very young men who had opportunities to be bad guys and could have made more money probably as uh, working in in illegal activities. Um, but what made them decide that they wanted to be on the right side of the law, and they they really took very seriously the the the, the description, the job description of peace officer in Dodge City, and they wanted to bring law and order to Dodge City in a very rough justice system, and and at, at, at a lot of personal risk. I mean, there were guys that came gunning for one or both of them because they were trying to, you know, impose law and order, and they might have arrested some cowboys' friends. So another bunch of cowboys came looking for Wyatt Earp and wanting to. You know, beat him up or shoot him or whatever. So that would be an interesting dinner conversation. Uh, and I guess another question would be, you know, who were some of your favorite characters that you encountered in Dodge City or on your, your your various travels? Because they did, you know, cross paths with a lot of these colorful characters that I that I, that I just mentioned. But both of them, being lawmen, had to be policemen, judge, jury, and often executioner, didn't they? Well, you know, they 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 did. There were judges in those days. Now, they, some of these judges were were you know appointed or elected you know without any qualifications. But uh, and they were you know not many towns had judges on on site. So a lot of times, with Wyatt and Bat, you know, were arresting somebody, they had to you know, hold them in jail. And they were actually the opposite of executioner in the sense that there's several stories in the book where they. 
you know, somebody was accused of something and, and you know, bad or, or, or why it would arrest them and put them in jail and they would have to, to guard them really because uh, sometimes the justice there was mob justice. Hey, this guy shot a friend of ours. Let's go lynch him. And, and they would have to, uh, you know, sometimes it was just the two of them, but just a handful of them against the whole town uh, to protect these prisoners. Now, they, they might have not even liked the prisoners. They might have even felt themselves the guy was guilty. And, you know, they, they probably would have liked to, to string him up too. But that the law was that you, you delivered your prisoner to the judge and have, have a judge and jury decide what the person's fate was going to be. And again, it took a lot of courage to do that because they, by this point, they were, you know, holding, holding shotguns up against their friends and neighbors who had, you know, who wanted to take somebody out of jail and, and tie them up to the nearest tree. What's the next book? Next book I'm working on is a book about George Washington at Valley Forge. And, uh, you know, again, people might say, oh, yeah, I know what Valley Forge is. What do we really know the story? You know, the, the, we see these, we have these images in our school textbooks over the, over the generations of soldiers freezing in the snow. But, you know, what actually happened there? What was it that, what was it that made Valley Forge such a desperate place? And what was it about George Washington at that particular time in his life that made the difference. I mean, George Washington at Valley Forge literally rescued the American Revolution, and so this is the story to tell. Please don't forget Martha when you tell the story. I won't. No, she plays an important role. She comes to Valley Forge in the middle of a terrible winter to be with her husband and to, to you know bring inspiration and comfort to these, to these beleaguered men who were serving under her husband. What motivates you besides curiosity to write books, whether it's Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, or George and Martha Washington? Well, curiosity is a big part of it. Um, I think wanting to tell a good story, you know, I think of, I think of myself as a storyteller. I, I, I like doing research. I like finding out, especially if you can find out stories about uh, the people in the book who are really haven't been told before. Uh, what's, what's new and different? What's, what's, what's a good story that people have not heard before? And what's a good story that have, we've heard the wrong version? We've heard an untrue version. And so that's a big motivator, to try and find the stories that people haven't heard before or the, what's, what's the true story behind the legend. That's a big part of my book, Dodge City, is the true stories behind what the, the, the legends that have been embellished or fabricated. And, and let's face it, I get paid to write books. So <laughs> a motivator is it's how I make my living. Well, both, all right, you get paid to write books. Which is more important then, a nice fat royalty uh, check or a good review? Oh well, I think I think nowadays. I mean, it's easier for me to say that um, telling good stories and and having the book be well received is more important. But I can say that now because there were you know there were many years where it took to get to the position where I'm paid well to to write the books that I do. You know, just like a lot of other people, I had to apprentice. I had to work hard. I was getting underpaid. Uh, there were things. There were projects I did that maybe the main motivator was money. But I've been very fortunate that, in, especially in recent years, that the books that I've done, you know, like Dodge City and and uh, done some previous books like Halsey's Typhoon and The Heart of Everything That Is, you know, these are books that really were passion projects. And, yes, I got paid for them, but uh, I could pick and choose projects that because they really interested me, not because I had to, you know, think more about the bottom line. And I'd like to say thank you to Thomas Clavin, author of the new book, Dodge City, Bat Masterson, Wyatt Herb and the wickedest town in the West. Thank you, Tom Faven. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon.
Stay tuned for WI. Stay tuned for Sunny Hill in the living room. Your opinion, Sunny's reactions. I hope you'll be listening. Easter Bunny's hopefully soaking his feet because it's been a long night, I'm sure. And as your day begins and that Easter candy's there to tempt you, have fun, but don't eat too much. Nothing left to say, but again, happy Easter. See you soon.